You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. A man is in custody this morning following a terrifying incident in which two Gardaí were shot and injured in Dublin's Blanchardstown. It's believed the Gardaí had called to the house when shots were fired at them. The scene was then sealed off while officers from the emergency response unit and experienced negotiators were brought in. The man surrendered peacefully sometime after nine o'clock. Our crime correspondent Paul Reynolds joins us now on the line. Paul, will you bring us through the evening's events? What happened? Yeah, Rachel, this began shortly after seven o'clock last night. The Gardaí received a report that shots had been fired in the Whitechapel estate in Blanchardstown in West Dublin. They responded, among them two armed detectives. When they arrived in the area, they were fired on. Shots hit the patrol car. The Gardaí said they got out of the car. They took cover. There was an exchange of gunfire. Both Gardaí were shot and injured. The shots came from a house in Whitechapel Grove. The Gardaí say a man was firing shots at them from an upstairs bedroom. The area was sealed off with an immediate cordon around the house and then a subsequent outside larger cordon, uh, cordoning off the larger area. The Gardaí say they put in place their critical incident response. Uh, this was now a barricade incident with an armed man in a house. An operational commander was appointed. The emergency response unit, armed support units, officers from the National Negotiators Unit arrived. The negotiators began a dialogue with the armed man and spoke to him uh, for more than two hours uh, at around half nine the man agreed to surrender his weapons uh, and uh, two loaded firearms were thrown out the window of the house a revolver and a machine pistol shortly afterwards a man appeared at the front door of the house he was topless with his hands up he walked down the driveway to the street where he complied with the guard the requests to first uh, go down on his knees then on his stomach, keeping his hands up. He was handcuffed, arrested, taken to Blanchardstown Guard Station, where he remains in custody this morning. How were the injured guards this morning? Um, well, uh, we, we were told they're in hospital uh, and that they're comfortable. Uh, when the Gardaí set up a protective uh, cordon uh, and when the shooting started, uh, the Gardaí, one of them was shot in the hand and foot, the other one was shot in the foot. Um, they couldn't move from where they were, even though they had been shot uh, straight away until the, the cordon had been set up. Uh, and then Gardaí with shields arrived and they were able to escort them out while their colleagues carried the two men uh, to ambulances a few hundred metres away. Uh, the injured Gardaí were treated at the scene. They were taken to Connolly Hospital. Their families were with them in hospital in the early hours of this morning. The Taoiseach, the Minister for Justice and the Garda Commissioner all paid tribute to their courage, wished them a rapid recovery. Uh, the Chief Superintendent in charge of the area, Chief Superintendent Finbar Murphy, spoke to us about the incident in the early hours of this morning. Just in relation to our own members, I think tonight is a reminder to us how dangerous it is for our guards out there every day when they go to work and the job that they do. And I want to thank them on behalf of the organisation, but also on behalf of the community for their work and the work that they do and the danger that they put themselves in to make our community safe. Um, and that is on behalf of myself, the community and the Garda Shikana. I say well done to them tonight. Everybody that responded tonight did a brilliant job. And these people who have families who are concerned about them? And these people have families, they've gone to work today, they have somebody had to make a phone call today to tell them this happened. It's, it's, it's real life, it's tough, but it's very, very important that the community appreciate the work that these guards are doing and the level of risk that they put themselves on on a daily basis to protect society. Paul, there was a media blackout in place for much of the evening. Why was that? 
Yeah, this went on for over three hours. The Guardi requested a news blackout. It was respected by all conventional national media uh, for the three hours while the incident continued. Um, this is uh, to avoid any potential aggravation of the situation. Uh, there have been incidents in the past where um, uh, people in situations like this may have heard uh, media reports, particularly broadcast reports. So the Guardi always ask uh, in cases like this uh, that the, the media not report anything. And the, the news blackout was respected by all conventional media, by the newspapers by the broadcasters for over three hours last night not however by social media pictures videos uh, speculation um, some and also mistaken and wrong information uh, began to appear soon afterwards and continued uh, right up uh, it was only after um, the uh, the inc the area was declared safe the man was in custody that the guardy then gave a press conference in the early hours this morning explaining uh, what what had happened I know at one stage there were reports on social media that a woman possibly the man's mother was also in the house. Yeah, and they were they were discounted by the Gardaí at that press conference. They said there was nobody else in the house. There was only one man in the house while the incident took place. Paul, all of this happened in the early evening, you know, an early summer's evening when kids are out playing in a busy suburban housing estate. It must have been pretty scary for people in the area. Yeah, it was, and, and uh, a lot of residents were asked to leave their homes, particularly people living in houses close to where the uh, the incident took place, uh, and they weren't allowed back uh, into their houses for over three hours. Some people who had come home from work or had come home were stopped at the cordon and prevented from going into their houses. We spoke to people in T-shirts, light clothes, who stood at the edge of the cordon for over three hours as it got colder and colder last night. There was also a group of about 50 or 60 local children, uh, under 9s, under 10s, or uh, and under 11s from the Mountview Boys and Girls Soccer club at their regular Tuesday night session last night across the road from where the incident took place. When the shooting started they heard the shots and the parents and the mentors responded by taking those children to safety first into the bushes and then into a local community hall. We spoke to uh, some people who were out of their homes and we spoke to some of the parents and mentors of that soccer club at the scene last night. Just where we were out training just heard all the shots and uh, it was a bit scary we just got all the kids in as soon as we could. But uh, scary. <laughs> you were with the Mountain View Club, are you? You're yeah. one of the trainers, are you? No, no, I was in some place. You're some place, but you were, yeah, but you were there on the on yeah. the sideline at the time. Yeah. That must have been very shocking for you. Well, yeah, we didn't know what the hell was happening. But uh, scary, scary. And somebody said that you had to hide the kids in the bushes before you got yeah. to the community centre. Over in the corner there. Just explain to us, yeah. So we got them in there. I mean, it calmed down. Just ran them all into the club, you know. So that's what happens. <laughs> and how are the kids? Really, yeah, kept them busy inside with the football and that so. All, 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 all ends well, you know, so. And how many kids? Oh, just loads of us. So there was a good, good few. There was training, you know, three or four uh, different ages training, you know, so. Yeah, you're under nines, I think. Yeah, under nines and elevens, yeah, yeah. So if you had four teams, you'd probably have about 60 or 70 kids. Well, if you have 60, yeah, yeah, easily, yeah. And how, how are you yourself after it? Still shaking, still shaking. I was worried about my daughter now, to be honest. She's in the house there on her own, so... What um, age is she? Oh, she's 22 now, but she's still my baby. <laughs> so, basically, I was just more worried about her, and my phone was dead, and the usual when you need her. <laughs> and uh, have you been able to talk to her? Yeah, she just spoke to me there two minutes ago. <laughs> so that's about it. <laughs> and she's okay, and you're okay? Yeah, yeah. Uh, geez, I don't think anything around here has happened like that for a long time. Like, you know, shocks when I heard the news, just came down to see what was going on, you know. And um, nothing, as I said, has happened around here for a long time like this, like so. Just total shock, like, you know. All I know, 
like I got, left my room, went out to have a walk, see what was happening. Next thing I'm locked out, wondering can I get home to have me snacks. And um, so you've been you've been out in a t-shirt, standing here for what four hours? Yeah, since a little past seven. It's like I just came across the road to get my aunt. Since like she was around here, since she can't get her car. And were you frightened? No, just normal thing. You think this is a regular occurrence around here? Regular enough that you're not bothered by it, but not so regular that you have to worry about it. People in Whitechapel last night. Paul, what can you tell us about the man who's in custody? Well, the man is well known to the Gardaí uh, for his involvement in serious and organised crime in West Dublin for over 20 years. He first came to the Gardaí attention uh, in his teens and in his 20s. Following the murder of the journalist Veronica Gearn in 1996, most of the established and major Dublin criminals fled the country to avoid cab and the crackdown. This left a vacuum which was filled by younger, more volatile and dangerous criminals. It led to the emergence of a criminal gang in West Dublin in the late 90s who were known as the Westies. Now two of their most senior members were subsequently murdered in Spain and their bodies later discovered buried under concrete in a car park. This man was involved with that criminal gang back then 20 years ago and then the subsequent criminal gang that emerged he's been before the courts on a number of occasions has served time in prison he's also a target of the guard the local and national units but he's also a target for other organized criminal gangs and has survived a number of attacks on his life including one where he was shot several times he was recently served with a guard the information message warning him his life was in danger uh, he's been detained this morning under section 30 of the offenses against the state act he can be questioned for up to three days in blanchardstown guard station paul thank you our crime correspondent paul reynolds <laughs> are going to return to our main story, the forced landing of that Ryanair plane in the Belarusian capital Minsk and the arrest of a 26-year-old journalist, Roman Pratosevich. We are joined now from Lithuania by Svetlana Tikhanakovskaya, who is the leader of the opposition and she has been exiled in the country since last year's vote, which was widely seen as being rigged in favour of Alexander Lukashenko. Svetlana Tikhanakovskaya, what is your reaction to what happened to the Ryanair flight yesterday? Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, we, as a matter of fact, we're really shocked with the, what has happened because uh, we see the escalation uh, of the violence uh, from the regime side and the fact that they forced to land uh, the whole plane. You know, they um, endangered lives of uh, Passengers of 18 nations, uh, 170 passengers was on the, were on the board. Just to uh, kidnap one person is threatened not only to uh, Belarusian security; it's threatened to worldwide security at the moment. Of course, we very we have to raise awareness about the situation uh, in Belarus uh, and uh, try to release all political prisoners. What do you fear will happen to him in Belarus? Uh, people in Belarus who are jailed, they are tortured, tortured harshly, and we really don't know what's going on to him. Lawyer is uh, uh, trying to uh, see uh, Roman Pertasevich, but we don't have uh, information uh, about him now. But for sure, he is not in safeness. Were you on that flight one week ago? Yes, I I uh, took the same flight a week ago from Greece. And I, as a matter of fact, I didn't even think that uh, I could uh, get into the same, uh, into the same position as, as Raman. You know, I didn't take care about this, you know. 
are you now concerned for your own safety? Mm. Uh, you know, I really don't have time to take care of my safety because people who are in jail in Belarus, they are in a much, much worse position than I am. So we have to take care, first of all, about uh, those people. What do you think, Svetlana, the European Union, the international community should do about what happened yesterday? Uh, first of all, we have we demand immediate international investigation on uh, this case. We uh, are going to raise this issue at the UN Security Council today and tomorrow. I already in contact with the ministers of Greece and uh, Ireland. And, of course, we have to ask about immediate release of uh, all political prisoners. And I have to say that the escalation of violence uh, in Belarus is the result of impunity. So we have to put much more pressure on the regime uh, to make them, uh, you know, be more talkative to civil society of Belarus. Do you think the EU's response to Belarus up until now has been too weak? You know, we see the, again, we see the escalation of violence. And maybe it was uh, rather slow, I'd say, because since December we haven't uh, had any uh, conferences around tables uh, on on international scene uh, about Belarusian question. And now we urge uh, European unity uh, about imposing the fourth package of sanction list and raise awareness about the situation in Belarus. The Irish Foreign Minister Simon Coveney told us this morning that any response from the European Union would have to be decisive. It could not be weak. He talked about sanctions which would cause a reaction in Minsk. What type of sanctions would have any impact on Alexander Lukashenko? Uh, these are personal sanctions uh, to those who are in, were involved in tortures and violence in Belarus, including judges and uh, prosecutors. And, of course, this is a very smart, targeted uh, economic sanctions on uh, state organizations. Uh, they are like pockets of Lukashenko. Do you know the man who was arrested? Do you know Roman Pratosevich? Yeah, I know him personally. And what do you say about him? Has Was he very influential in your success in last year's election? No, he is one of the voices uh, of Belarus. He uh, was telling to Belarusians uh, the truth about the uh, situation. And uh, I think that he is uh, like private enemy to Lukashenko. Okay. Thank you so much for joining us this morning uh, on the line from Lithuania, Svetlana Tikhanakovskaya, who is the leader of the opposition in Belarus. And just before we leave this story for now, the chief executive of Ryanair, Michael O'Leary, has been speaking to News Talk Radio this morning about what happened yesterday. Uh, here's what he had to say. 
I think it's the first time it's happened to a European airline, but I mean, this was a case of state-sponsored, it was a state-sponsored hijack, state-sponsored piracy, um, but uh, unfortunately I can't say much about it because the EU authorities and NATO are dealing with it at the moment. Uh, we're debriefing the crews. Uh, our crews did a phenomenal job to get that aircraft and uh, almost all the passengers out of Minsk after six hours, um, but we have to do, do it for a detailed debrief today with the NATO and EU authorities. I think it was very frightening for the crew, for the passengers um, who were held under armed guard, had their bags searched. Um, when it was clear, it appears that the intent of the Russian authorities was to uh, remove a journalist and his traveling companion. Uh, and, you know, we believe there was also some uh, KGB agents offloaded off the aircraft as well. That was Michael O'Leary speaking to News Talk within the past hour. The cyber criminals who attacked the HSE's computer systems have threatened to release personal data online from today if no ransom is paid. The hackers, believed to be a Russian organised crime group, have been holding on to sensitive data for 10 days now. The disruption to the HSE's IT system has resulted in thousands of appointments being cancelled since the ransomware attack. We can talk now to Ryan Gallagher, investigative reporter on the Bloomberg Cyber Security Team, who has been covering this story. Ryan, good morning and thank you for talking to us. Hi there, good morning. Thanks for having me on. Um, Is there any evidence at this point, Ryan, that the attackers uh, have uploaded the stolen data online? No, not not as up, uh, you know, as recently as a couple of minutes ago before I came on uh, the phone, I checked and they haven't, there hasn't been any update. I've looked on the dark web uh, where these guys usually post uh, information that they've stolen from, from companies or organizations they target. And they haven't put up any HSC documents as far as I can see this morning. Where is the information likely to appear first? I mean, uh, people, when they log on to their Facebook accounts or their social media or they Google their names, are they likely to see their personal data on, on the, the, the mainstream web? No, it's 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 more likely that, that these this group um, they they go under the name Conti or Wizard Spider would post it on on the dark web. So that's not accessible with the normal internet browser. You need a, a certain specialist kind of browser that's called Tor, um, and they they have a, a website on there that they post stolen information on there uh, and that's probably where it would be most likely to appear the alternative is that this gang would actually sell the information and in the case that they sell it it might never appear on the dark web it might be used by another criminal group for for example fraud or identity theft so we wouldn't we wouldn't actually know in that case until you started seeing cases like that come up of people getting identity theft and all that Yes, and what kind of information then is likely to be sold? What would be of value to these other criminal organisations that deal in this kind of information? Well, it'd probably be personal personal information, and you know, details about people's, uh, you know, their their names, addresses, dates of birth, uh, where national insurance number in the UK would be the, the sort of equivalent. Um, the, these types of details that would identify a person, and it could be used to, I don't know, obtain um, credit in their name or some something like that. These would that would be useful information. In this case, what people would be very concerned about, of course, would be that their extremely personal medical information could be obtained by a third party. And, and I mean, who knows what that could be obtained um, used for. We have seen in the past, unfortunately, cases like that being used to try and blackmail people 
to you know, you know going approaching individuals whose 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 data is in there and saying we will release this unless you pay us money. So that that's another really horrible potential scenario that could come out of this. There will, of course, be heightened awareness by people about possible scams in the coming days and weeks. But is this a longer term problem? Are we likely to see the the criminals hold on to the data for months or maybe even years before they start using this information? It's possible. Unfortunately, it is a much bigger problem. And there are many, many cases like this that we're seeing again and again. Um, it seems to be a sort of spike in it in the last couple of years in particular. Um, and it does tend to go on and on. There, were, there was a case in Scandinavia, I think last year, where a psychotherapist's office had been hacked and, and hackers were trying to use the, the p- people's personal files about their your mental health to actually extort individual patients. And that went on for, for many months. Um, so I think it, the, the fallout from this, it, is, it could potentially go on for a while, especially given the, the size of the, you know, the amount of data we know that was obtained, which was quite a large, large amount. So the, these guys have obtained a lot of information, unfortunately, and there's a lot of different ways they can try and use that to, to make money, which is their ultimate goal. That's all they're really trying to do is to try and get money. The, the government here has said it's not talking to the criminals and says it won't be paying any ransom. But what's your understanding about the communication that has taken place between the authorities or their representatives here and the attackers? Uh, well, my understanding is that there really hasn't been a great deal of communication. Uh, I think the, the initially um, when this when the case first sort of came up, I think it was about the 14th of May, there was a, an initial back and forth where the authorities in Ireland had asked for proof that these hackers had obtained data. The hackers then provided that proof in the form of about 27 documents that showed internal you know, medical records and things that had been taken from the health executive. And then the, the communication sort of ceased at that point. I think the Irish authorities have decided they don't want to negotiate, they don't want to pay any ransom. And so there's just been kind of um, silence until then. I, I believe the Irish authorities did actually try and send the hackers a court order, that, uh, an injunction that was obtained um, preventing the publication of this uh, data. Um, and the hackers responded to that, I think, with a, just a question mark. I don't know if they understood the court order. I mean, I'm not sure if they really care about that either. But um, that's there hasn't been much communication, um, not at all. It's not been like a, a lengthy back and forth at all. All right. And anybody who is uh, thinks they might be the victim of a scam or an attack is asked to contact the Garda confidential telephone line, which is open 24-7 on 1-800-666-111. Ryan Gallagher, investigative reporter on the Bloomberg cybersecurity team. Thank you for talking to us this morning. The British government disastrously failed the public by mishandling its pandemic response, according to a former top aide to the Prime Minister. In a marathon session of a committee on lessons learned from the pandemic, Dominic Cummings said Boris Johnson was unfit for the job, that he was recklessly casual in the early days of the crisis, even volunteering to get infected with COVID-19 live on TV to show there was nothing to fear. Mr Cummings said the Prime Minister declined to learn from mistakes and ignored scientists' advice in September to introduce a second lockdown leading to many more deaths over winter.
The truth is that senior ministers, senior officials, senior advisers like me fell disastrously short of the standards that the public has a right to expect of its government in a crisis like this. When the public needed us most, the government failed. And I'd like to say to all the families of those who, uh, who died unnecessarily how sorry I am for the mistakes that were made and for my own mistakes at that. The government itself, and Number 10, was not operating on a war footing in February on this in any way, shape or form. Lots of key people were literally skiing. The Prime Minister regarded this as just a, a scare story. He, he, regarded, he d described it as the new swine flu. Did you tell him it wasn't? S certainly. But the view of various officials inside Number 10 was if we have the Prime Minister chairing Cobra meetings and he just tells everyone it's swine flu, don't worry about it, I'm going to get Chris Whitty to inject me live on TV with coronavirus so everyone realises it's nothing to be frightened of, that would not help actually serious planning. We're thinking, what do we do on this? At this point, the second most powerful official in the country, she says, I've just been talking to the official who is in charge of coordinating with the Department for Health. He said, quote, I've been told for years that there is a whole plan for this. There is no plan. We're in huge trouble. So there's a, there's a great misunderstanding people have that because it nearly killed him, therefore he must have taken it seriously. But in fact, after the first lockdown, his view was he was cross with me and for others into what he regarded as basically pushing him into the first lockdown. His argument after that happened was... Literally, quote, I should have been the mayor of Jaws and kept the beaches open. That's, that's what he said on many, many occasions. He didn't think in July or September, you know, thank goodness we did the first lockdown, it was obviously the right thing to do, etc., etc. His argument then was, we shouldn't have done the first lockdown and I'm not going to make the same mistake again. Is he not concerned about the number of people that, that, that died? I mean, did, did you hear him say, like, the bodies pile high in their thousands or it's only killing 80-year-olds? There's been a few different versions of this, but the version that the BBC reported was accurate. And you heard that? I heard that in the Prime Minister's study. Nobody could find a way around the problem of the Prime Minister just like a shopping trolley smashing from one side of the aisle into the other. It, it's completely crackers that someone like me should have been in there, just the same as it's crackers that Boris Johnson was in there. And the problem in this crisis was very much lions led by donkeys over and over again. We let down the people on the front line. I think that the Secretary of State for Health should have been fired for at least 15, 20 things, including lying to everybody in multiple occasions, in meeting after meeting in the, in the Cabinet room and publicly. By the 31st of October, our relations were essentially already finished. The fact that his girlfriend also wanted rid of me was, you know, Relevant, but not the heart of the, the heart of the problem. The heart of the problem was uh, fundamentally, I regarded him as unfit for the job, and I was trying to create a structure around him to try and stop what I thought were extremely bad decisions and push other things through against his wishes. I think some people might ask whether you're hedging your bets slightly um, with an eye on a future administration run by Rishi Sunak. I think everyone, from my wife to everybody in Westminster and Whitehall, will agree that um, the less everyone hears of me in the future, the better. 
And that's just a small selection of moments from Dominic Cummings' seven-hour session of evidence to MPs about his time in number 10 during the pandemic. It was compiled by our reporter Killian Sherlock. Tim Bale is Professor of Politics at Queen Mary University of London. Tim, good morning. Good morning. Longer and bloodier than Hamlet, one newspaper says this morning. It promised fireworks and Dominic Cummings didn't disappoint, did he? He didn't, know. It was a devastating critique, not only of Boris Johnson personally and also Matt Hancock, the health secretary, but also the way that the British government actually ran its response to the pandemic more generally. So those of us who thought this might turn out to be a bit of an anticlimax were <laughs> very, very wrong indeed. It was really, really eye-opening. Mm. And quite the body count. Matt Hancock, as you say, the health secretary, accused of lying repeatedly, should have been sacked on 15 or 20, uh, for 15 or 20 missteps along the way. The Department of Health, the Cabinet Secretary, Carrie Simmons, Boris Johnson's partner, even the Jack Russell dog. That's right. I mean, there were some pretty serious allegations made against Matt Hancock, in particular the uh, question of whether people uh, were tested uh, before they were discharged from hospital into care homes because we had an awful lot of deaths of older people uh, in care homes who'd come out of hospital. I think that'll be the one that people concentrate on. But really, in some ways, the most devastating critique, I think, was of the Prime Minister, and in particular, not so much his failure in the first wave, although that was pretty serious, but his failure uh, to counteract the second wave by learning uh, from the first wave, by locking down harder and faster. Uh, And as a result, we have this quote from Dominic Cummings that, you know, tens of thousands of people who didn't need to die, died. How does a a prime minister move on from that, from from that statement you quote there and and that other statement uh, prior, I think it was September uh, and the second lockdown where he says, Boris Johnson in his study said, I'd rather see the bodies pile high than order a further lockdown. I know Boris Johnson denies saying that. Well, it was very interesting. There was another quote as well, which he didn't deny yesterday in the House of Commons, where he said, you know, only people over 80 die from this. Now, (laughs) given that, you know, thousands of families have had their relatives who are over 80 die from this, that will have been really, really very, very difficult to hear. As to how he moves on, well, look... Uh, Boris Johnson uh, won the Conservative Party a massive majority in 2019. Boris Johnson managed to get Brexit done. Uh, The Tories are, you know, ahead of Labour by double digits in the opinion polls at the moment. They had a very, very good local election win uh, a couple of weeks ago. I mean, the government is in a very, very strong position. So it's unlikely that his MPs are are going to, you know, make a move on him because of these... um, these uh, accusations and indeed you know what we can see already is a kind of circling of the wagons uh, by government MPs to defend both uh, the the Prime Minister and indeed Matt Hancock. Don't you always Tim have to ask why? Why did Dominic Cummings go in there yesterday all guns blazing and discharge both barrels all over the place except for Michael Gove and Rishi Sunak? Yes, I mean, it was very evident that uh, those two figures escaped uh, any criticism by him. And in some ways, that undermines his evidence. It it seemed to be so directed towards Matt Hancock in particular and and Boris Johnson that to some extent, you know, some of the accusations may be discounted uh, as as a result. But, I mean, we we have to give 
uh, Dominic Cummings perhaps some benefit of the doubt. It's possible that, of course, he has an axe to grind, but it's also possible that because you know he he had a ringside seat on all this, he 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 did feel. Uh, that mistakes were made. Um, you know, he was quite self-effacing in some ways, um, perhaps rather instrumentally about his own mistakes, uh, and 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 feels that you know British government really does need to do better, particularly because, of course, although you know we've got the vaccine at the moment, and you know we're all feeling that we're we're coming out of this, um, we're not necessarily out of the woods yet, and uh, he he possibly is concerned. Um, that we don't make the same mistakes uh, again. Mm -hmm. And he also has this sort of long-term critique of, of the British government, and that came through uh, yesterday, for not uh, being able to recruit specialists, people who are kind of technically competent, and relying on, if you like, amateurs like him, <laughs> indeed. I'm sure there'll be further dissection of his evidence over the coming days, indeed. Thank you very much. That's Tim Bale, Professor of Politics at Queen Mary University of London. Going straight away to some breaking news, planning permission for a 179 apartment complex on the grounds of the former mother and baby home at Bespera in Cork has been rejected by Onboard Planola. The application by developers MWB2 Limited was the subject of an oral hearing. Our reporter Sinead Spain joins us in studio. Sinead, will you remind us of the background to all of this? Because it's a long story. It is a long story. And as you say, Bespera is a former mother and baby home and in this planning application MWB2 Limited wanted to build 179 apartments in three apartment blocks ranging in height from five to seven storeys so it was a significant development that was planned on the site and the survivors of the mother and baby homes opposed the plans claiming that those three blocks would overlap with an area which is marked on some historic maps as a children's burial ground. Now if we go back to the Commission of Investigation into mother and baby homes that previously heard evidence that there were 923 children born or associated with Bespera who died between 1922 and the closure of the home in 1998 and at the time of its investigation the commission couldn't find burial records or they could only find burial records for just 64 infants and that prompted a campaign group Cork Survivors and Supporters Alliance to call for a proper examination of the Bespera grounds and it was really on that basis that they opposed this planning application. And the appeal went to an oral hearing. It did. It went to on board Planola and in a decision today which was circulated to all of the parties who made submissions at that hearing, the board says that it's not satisfied that the site was not previously used as and does not contain a children's burial ground. It finds that there are reasonable concerns that the site could contain a burial ground and that in that context it will be premature to grant permission for such a development without establishing those facts on whether there is a burial ground located on the site and also the extent of that burial ground. So it's on this grounds that they say the proposed development would be contrary to the proper planning and development of the sustainable development of the area. Sinead, thanks indeed for joining us with that. 
Language activists in Northern Ireland returned to Stormont this week to demand the introduction of Irish language legislation, which was promised in the New Decade New Approach deal brokered last year to restore power sharing. There's no political move yet on the delivery of Ochtnagwelga, but in the meantime, work to grow the language goes on on the ground, with the first Irish language preschool getting ready to open in East Belfast this September. Laura Hogan reports. Arriving at the Branyal Estate in East Belfast, Union flags line the lampposts. Here in the heart of this staunchly Protestant and Unionist area, the first Irish language preschool in East Belfast is getting ready to open its doors in September. It's the first of its kind in a Protestant area of Northern Ireland. My wee girl will be attending school in September and just delighted. Parent Kivani Cahill is from West Belfast, but is sending her daughter to this preschool on the other side of the city. My husband's a Protestant, so for us we're a mixed marriage. We want to ensure that our child understands both aspects of her culture and heritage and all of the communities that are here and that we feel that integrated education is going to be the best route to do that. And Irish medium, being a Gaelic speaker myself and raising her through Irish is also a massive important thing for me as well. So to have the both together is just a dream come true. Nískol Nasholta, or School of Sales, is so named because of its proximity to the Harland and Wolf shipyard. It came about following the work of Irish language teacher Linda Irvine, who's been running classes for adults in the area for many years. Ran a lot of sort of education programmes and for us it's about showing how the language, I suppose it joins us as a group of islands throughout the British Isles because it's one of a family of Celtic languages. It's a language that belongs here and you know we have shown in East Belfast the language is all around us it's in our place names it's in our surnames it's in words that we use in everyday speech it's in the constructions of our language so you know it's probably more strange if people aren't interested in it it will be located on the grounds of the Branyal primary school here's its principal Diane Dawson I think as a as a controlled school we're very proud of our culture very I'm very proud of my unionist culture and background but I also embrace that of the Irish culture and background, uh, my father's culture, and I certainly really think that any school should be for all children. And we are. Every child of every faith, culture and religion has always been welcome in Braniel, so the Nískull is very welcome. Nískull Nasholta may have the wind behind it, but ongoing political tensions between Unionists and Sinn Féin over Irish language legislation linger in the air. And you, Next, the This week, activists took their campaign to the steps of Stormont. Last year's deal to restore power sharing promised action on the issue, but 500 days later, no progress has been made. Campaigner, Padraig Tierney. Nískol Nasholta in East Belfast is in an incredibly positive story uh, and must be welcomed by all. Uh, it's testimony to all of those uh, people who have really, really put in months and years of work to make this happen. And it's a fantastic uh, endorsement for the Irish language community and for Irish language education and we wish them all the best. The Nískol recently secured funding from Forest Nguelga, a north-south body to promote the Irish language set up after the Good Friday Agreement. Aidan McHaffrey is on the school's committee. The NISCO was ready to go ahead uh, about a year and a half ago and Covid put a stop to everything. The committee started up with new vigour there a few months ago and then we got funding from Forest Nigelia, so full steam ahead. 
The ultimate goal is for this knee skull to be the building blocks for an integrated Irish language primary school in East Belfast. Uh, obviously all Gael skulls are uh, interdenominational but this, is an, this hopefully will be an, an actual integrated school and it gives a chance to lots of people from different backgrounds who didn't have a chance previously to send their children uh, to um, do their education through the medium of Irish. And that was Edan McHaffrey ending that report from Laura Hogan on the East Belfast Nieskull. There's a further easing of restrictions in the north today. Six people from two households able to meet inside private homes. Pubs, restaurants, cafes allowed to serve tables of six indoors. Hotels can reopen. Indoor group exercise also allowed again. The limit on the size of outdoor gatherings increased to 500. Museums and cinemas are reopening as well. Peter Rabbit 2 is on the big screen but not on this side of the border. We're joined by Mark Anderson, director of the Omniplex Cinema Group. And Mark, you operate on both sides of the border. So, um, you know, a happy day for cinema fans and staff in the north. Yes, Audrey, it's, it's a tale of, of two cities, really. Uh, in, in, in our 16 cinemas in Northern Ireland, we're, we're, we'll be open and trading for business at, uh, um, at two-meter social distancing, uh, as we had traded previously in in the south uh, in December, but uh, in the in the in the Republic of Ireland, there's just there's no joy for the uh, for the cinema industry and no visibility on a return uh, on a return to, uh, to to work. It's it's something that is now increasingly becoming an outlier um, in in Europe, not only in the EU but also in wider Europe, where we see that. 85% of countries have now either open cinemas or they have announced reopening dates. And uh, by the 9th of June, 90% of cinemas in Europe and the EU and the UK and in Iceland and Norway and Turkey, all of these countries will be, uh, will be open and will be trading. And Ireland, uh, unless uh, decisions are made soon, will be left out in the cold. Okay, is is there no visibility? Do you not expect to be reopening along with the the indoor dining, for example? Well, the the, the most we have from the last and the announcement of the last reopening uh, um, was that we were told cinemas would be opening on the seventh of June. That date was um, was announced. It was announced on on government official government channels, and then it was it was taken away for some unknown reason. And and that really was the most deflating part of the last five months to have a date, uh, to get uh, energised uh, about a reopening date, and then for that to be taken away, and for it to be put back into a wider sometime in June scope. Other than that, we, we we've had no assurances that it will be June or that it will be any specific date in June. Will you be able to find staff when you reopen? It's 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 one of the, the the most difficult things about about this is that uh, we can provide no no. St- job security to any of our staff members. We've lost a, a huge amount of staff. The industry has been hemorrhaging staff to other industries. We've lost qualified staff. It is a niche market and it does have niche skills. And to lose all of your staff essentially to other industries, trying to entice and attract those staff members back uh, uh, to, the, to the industry without an opening date, is, it's impossible. It just can't be done. Do you expect people to head north if they can to cross the border to go and see a movie there? Absolutely. I mean, Peter Rabbit too. It's it's a it's a great family film, uh, but we 
the industry does not want to be seen to be encouraging cross-border travel, but human nature being human nature and for a, 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 a day's activity, um, especially in, in border towns, and there are eight cinemas in Northern Ireland within 20 kilometres of the border, I expect there will be a, 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 a substantial amount of people that will be travelling for, for Peter Rabbit. And as, as, as the, the summer goes on, as in June goes on, there's Fast and Furious 9 coming out, there's there's a, a new Marvel movie, uh, Black Widow, uh, that's that's coming out. Uh, there's Qu- A Quiet Place 2, uh, which which are all really, really uh, high IP uh, content that's, yeah. that's going to be exclusively available in cinemas. Oh, you have been missed, that's for sure, Mark. Good to talk to you. Thank you very much, Mark Anderson, director of the Omniplex Cinema Group. Children are living in filthy, overcrowded, damp and rat-infested conditions on a local authority halting site. That's according to a report carried out by the Ombudsman for Children's Office. Young children at the site told investigators about seeing rats running up and down the walls of the trailers. One spoke of feeling ashamed because of going to school dirty. Another told of sleeping in wet blankets at night. The Ombudsman found the local authority failed to consider the best interests of the children. The report does not identify the local authority so as to protect the anonymity of the children involved. Well, we can talk now to our social affairs and religion correspondent, Alva Keneally, who has been looking at this report. Alva, what's the background to this report? Well, three years ago, the Ombudsman for Children's Office received a complaint from a traveller advocacy groups about conditions at a halting site where 66 children and their families were living. And 11 families at the site made a formal complaint on several several grounds and they included a persistent problem with rodent infestation, inadequate sanitation, extreme overcrowding, a high rate of childhood illness caused by living conditions, no amenities or safe play areas for the children and housing applications for some families not being progressed. So the Ombudsman for Children's team, they investigated the complaints made by the families and visited the site on a number of occasions to talk to the children and to see the situation for themselves. And what did they find? Well, during their visits, the team spoke to 17 children. They got them to show them around the site, where they live, where they sleep, where they play. Uh, The report states that the team observed overcrowding with children sleeping on makeshift beds, cramped into living or dining spaces. Uh, There was evidence of damp on the walls and the ceilings of the mobile units. The report notes that children walking and playing in areas uh, where it was described as uh, where there was an abundance of rubbish. It also notes the ongoing rodent problem at the site um, which has been ongoing for many years relating to waste management one of the children who's 12 years old she told inspectors that walking up to school you see all the rats and they'd be running up and down the walls of the trailer and several children showed the investigators a shortcut that they take to school and the passage it gets muddy so this in turn results in muddied shoes and clothing which the children described as a particular problem going to and from school and they felt it drew negative and unwanted attention from their peers and given the overcrowded conditions at the site sanitation isn't easily accessible there are 140 people using the toilets and washing facilities designed for 40 people and residents say this has led to stress and tension and at times conflict and alva what does the report then say about the role of the local authority 
Well, this site was established by the local authority in question 32 years ago and originally there were 10 authorised bays. What happened was more people moved in and their families expanded. Now, they're described as unauthorised residents in the report. So the site has been overcrowded for some time and the Traveller Advocacy Group that brought the complaint on behalf of the children and their families told the Ombudsman's team that they were exhausted by efforts over the years to try and make things better and um, that getting improvements on the site were in vain. So the report also gives an insight into tensions between the local authority and those living on the halting site. The local authority said there was resident hostility towards its staff, its contractors and service providers, with some residents, it said, refusing contractor access to the site to collect the likes of waste and make essential electrical, health and safety repairs and upgrade work. Um, I think it's fair to say, reading the report, that, you know, trust has broken down on both sides. And those that are caught in the middle really are the children. You mentioned, Alva, that the report addresses overcrowding on the site and the investigation also went into the provision of housing for those on the site. What did they find? One of the complaints from the families was that housing was not being progressed for them and the local authority advised the Ombudsman's office that they faced two major issues in relation to rehousing families. One was that many of the families would not consider any houses outside their preferred area, according to the local authority. And the authority told the investigation team that, you know, it didn't have sufficient housing stock to meet this desire. Secondly, they said that the families have been slow to engage engage with choice-based letting, that this choice-based letting system. And what that is, is basically an online scheme for individuals to express interest in housing stock in a preferred area. Now, this was introduced by the local authority authority in November 2015. But if, for example, you've no internet and this site doesn't have any internet and um, there are literacy skills to contend with, well, there's going to be slow engagement. So the local authority said it has an office where the scheme could be accessed online and its traveller advocacy unit is also available to help. But the Ombudsman report finds that record keeping by the authority regarding housing applications were incomplete or they weren't processed, which it says means that family may have missed out on getting a home or just didn't move up the housing list as a result. So it called on the local authority to immediately review housing application complaints made by the 11 families in question to acknowledge any errors and if there's any um, redress um, as a response. And that review of the the housing applications, that's just one of a number of recommendations in this report. That's right. There are a number of recommendations requesting that the local authority examine its approach to housing these families. Other recommendations include a risk assessment in cooperation with the residents, including the children, to uh, address the health and safety risks identified at the site. The Ombudsman has also called on the local authority to engage with the HSE, TUSLA and Youth Services to improve the lives of children living on the site. Um, It says ultimately that the CEO of the local authority should take responsibility in implementing all the recommendations that are are outlined in this report and um, traveller advocacy groups, they have welcomed those recommendations. All right, Alva, thank you very much indeed for that. Social Affairs and Religion Correspondent Alva Kennedy. The new DUP leader Edwin Poots launched quite a broadside against Fine Gael, especially Tánis Dalia Varadkar and Foreign Affairs Minister Simon Coveney after he was formally ratified as leader last night. Here are some of his remarks to reporters, including our own Laura Hogan, who asked him about plans to meet the Taoiseach. And here's what Edwin Poots said. 
Have you made contact with the Irish government yet and do you have any plans to travel to Dublin to meet with the Taoiseach? Well, we'll be making contact with the Irish government. I was, wasn't later uh, until uh, tomorrow, um, so those things will flow from that. I would say that um, I have respect for Micheál Martin, um, but I have to say that for Leo Varadkar and Simon Coveney, who took uh, 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 photographs of blown-up border posts to impose upon Northern Ireland people a harshest form of customs and an internal market that doesn't exist anywhere else in the world was quite frankly disgraceful. And they're going to starve Northern Ireland people of medicines, no less, cancer drugs and other um, materials such as the food that's on our table. And I'd say that's a shame on the Irish government that they've done that. And that belongs to Fianna Gael under the leadership of Leo Varadkar and Simon Coveney. So relationships are really, really bad with the Irish government as a consequence. The new DUP leader speaking to our reporter, Laura Hogan, amongst others, last night. Joining us now, Alex Kane, a columnist and political commentator. Do you know what he's talking about, Alex? Well, good morning. Yes, I think the problem for Putz is that when he was elected leader, um, I think his main uh, plan was to be reasonably conciliatory, reasonably pragmatic, because he doesn't want the Assembly to collapse. I think he knows that dumping the protocol is going to be enormously difficult and will take good relationships with the British government, the Irish government and the EU. But he is so weak now. He, he made it to the leadership. He needed 19 votes. He got 19 votes. He had a horrible night last night. What was supposed to be a, a, a brief ratification followed by lots of speeches and, you know, ideas are going forward turned into just a marathon turned into a nightmare he is i think you have to go back almost 50 years on you to find a, a unionist party leader who entered office as weak as Putz now is and the gallery he's decided to play to and I, I don't know how long it'll last but is this let's attack the irish government let's attack you know everyone else because he's trying to rally the party around on the ground the, the, the movement against the protocol is quite strong. The orange orders against the protocol, number of other external forces uh, which could challenge the DUP against the protocol. So Pooch is now playing to his, his hardline base and I think that is going to be an enormously difficult situation for him to, to keep going over the next few months. And the divisions were on show, weren't they? There were walkouts before his speech, is that right? Oh, look, this, this, this is extraordinary. I, I used to work for the Ulster Unionist Party, so I remember, I remember when Geoffrey Donaldson, Arlene Foster and people walked away during the Good Friday uh, negotiations. I remember when they left the party five years later and joined the Democratic Unionist Party. And one of the reasons Arlene gave when she, when she joined the DUP, it was a united party, a strong family where there was loyalty across the party. Now the DUP, it's a sort of parallel universe world. The DUP seems to have morphed into the Ulster Unionist Party where you have divisions which are open. And I think in, in one sense that was almost inevitable because when for 50 years they didn't have a leadership election. So any splits there were, and there were divisions, were kept in-house. And it was, you know, united we stand, divided we fall. When you have a competition and the leader just about wins it's very difficult to pretend that you don't have difficulties. I think, yes, again, they're talking about that we, we are the only party, we are the biggest party. But the two opinion polls in the past couple of weeks have them down at 16% from 30% in December 2019, the general election. They're now registering around 16%. This is nightmare territory. And what makes it, I suppose, fascinating for observers in one sense, the Democratic Unionist Party has never in its entire history, and it'll be 50 in, in September, it has never, ever been in this territory before. This is all new ground for it.
Final question, Alex Kane. Who's going to be First Minister, given that Edwin Poot says he's not going to take the job? Well, uh, it, it looks like his fellow MLA in Lagan Valley, Paul Given, might be given it. But what's emerging, Anya, is that when Poot's had a lineup of ministerial colleagues to take their positions over the next, you know, by, by now, a lot of them seem to be going to ground. A lot of people seem to be backing away because I think they've realised that he has an enormous problem. The party has an enormous problem. And some people who might have been keen to be First Minister may have decided that the, the, the hits that they would take in the, in the succeeding few months may not be good for their political careers. Alex Kane, political columnist and commentator, thank you for speaking to us on Morning Ireland. Second level schools are closing this week for the summer during what was a difficult and disrupted school year. Much has been said about the plight of leaving certificate students, but of course all students have missed out and some schools say they're especially concerned now for those middle students in third and fourth year. Some of those students, both urban and rural, have been talking to our education correspondent Emma O'Kelly about their concerns and experiences in this report. The sun is shining and transition year students are playing rounders in the yard of Our Lady of Mercy Secondary School when I arrive. This perfect scene belies the year these students have had. They've missed the normal things that TY should be all about. The class trips, the work experience and on top of that they had no junior cert exams last year. Here's TY students Libby Landers and Robin Rogers. Online work was really hard because... Um, it wasn't interacting with teachers, it wasn't one-on-one. Like, in school, you're allowed, if you have them, they come over, if you see them crossing the hall, it wasn't like that. In TY, you would look forward to a lot of stuff, such as trips and activities, and we had a trip organised for, I think it was before Christmas, to go to Glendalough, and that's sort of our bonding experience for the year, and that got cancelled, obviously, so we didn't have one of them. And then we had, obviously, our three months off. Well, the worst fears were, I suppose, that the students who were on the school completion targeted lists of being at risk of early school leaving, that they would not come back to us. Pori Gibbons is principal at Our Lady of Mercy Secondary School. He says that thankfully those worst fears have not come to pass, but there's still danger ahead. For a student who may come from a background with not a lot of support or who may come from a difficult background, this is their safe place, essentially. And this is where they are free to express themselves and free to learn and to feel safe. We would have concerns in terms of how the current transition years, the current third years and the current fifth years in particular will come back to us in September. There was a huge engagement in the online teaching. Every teacher did their best, every student did their best, but it is not the same. That needs to be recognised as a face-to-face teaching that could take place. Back with the TYs, Ryan Merriman explains the challenge he faced during the school closures. I just found it hard, like being motivated to get up in the morning and be like, oh, online school. Because in a, when you're going to school, you're like, oh yeah, have to get dressed and go to school, but on, online, you can't really do any of that. And it's just the, the atmosphere at home isn't the same as in school as well, you know. You turn and tell you, sit in your bed or just do nothing, you know. Ryan's biggest concern is about the fact that he didn't get to sit his junior cert exams. Like in Torja, everyone was like, thank God we didn't have the junior cert. But now looking at it, like we, I don't think any of us know where we are for education. So 
If someone said you want to do junior cert, I'd say yeah. Classmates of Ryan's, like Kimberly Coker, nod assiduously as he expresses this concern. Obviously, it's good that we didn't have to do it because there was no stress, but obviously we don't know like what levels we're at. Far away from Dublin 12 in the Leash countryside, another teenager is musing about the impact of the lockdowns on her education. Georgie Rome is in third year. It may seem odd, but she feels that during lockdown, her horizons actually expanded and she grew. Through social media and stuff during lockdown, like you got to relate to a lot of people and what they were, their situations. There's the platform TikTok and like, the Black Lives Matter protest, I think that was a big part of TikTok for a while. You feel you've matured? I have, yeah. Like, I'd, I'd forgotten what it's like to do nothing and, like, not have training in the evening or have to finish my homework, then just go to bed and wake up and do school all over again. I just, I got to take time out and think. So what lies ahead for the second level system's middle children this year's junior cert and TY years? After the summer, there's some serious catching up to be done, as Pori Gibbons explains. Third year is going into transition year. It will be more, much more of a structured academic approach. So the basics of your English, your Irish, your maths, your literacy, your numeracy, they can be caught up on to bridge that gap. In terms of transition year going into fifth year, again, there will be... Uh, Almost like a boot camp. And what do Porig's students make of that? Not good, no. So going into fifth year now, you're going to have to put your head down. You're going to have to work really hard to get the grades that you want. Well, enjoy the summer holidays. That was Emma O'Kelly reporting there. You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.